Coming to you Tuesday morning. Keith Finnegan with you until midday. Today on the programme, we're looking at the increase. The increasing calls when it comes to domestic violence, also on today's programme. Sinn Féin are looking indeed to restore the pension age to 65. Also, we're looking at rail services. Today, also, we're looking at Heroes Aid. We're also looking indeed at uh, rape trials and the coverage of same and uh, the guidelines that are there. Uh, also today, Galway Gardaí are looking for assistance. We're going live to Europe uh, today because MEP Luke, Minig- Luke Ming Flanagan joins us. We're looking at cap negotiations here. Alan Kearns and a few more have got together for a frontline healthcare help. Today also, Polly from Evergreen, Dorothy Craven joins us from Rent the Runway. And much more as it just unfolds between now and 12 midday. Comment lines are open today if you want to get through to us on 0917 And uh, when is weed not a weed? Now, I'm not talking about a person. I'm talking about the weed. As I look out into our own uh, front yard here uh, through the studio one windows, I can see weeds. But when is a weed not a weed? Figure that one out now, please, if you don't mind. Nice piece on that coming the way as well. And good morning to all in the NDLS Centre uh, today because a man in excess of 70 couldn't figure out the whole application process. So he presented himself to the NDLS centre yesterday. And he said the staff couldn't be nicer. No, no, that's not me. No. And he insisted on calling here afterwards to inform me of how nice they were in the NDLS centre in Ballybrit. So to them for having the patience of Job putting up with them, uh, he's delighted with himself. He's got his licence and all of that type of stuff done. Uh, but he said he wouldn't have done it. He was trying to do it online and trying to do it on his phone and otherwise, and he had to put in some extra details that uh, uh, other people wouldn't have to put in, and he just found it difficult. So good morning there. Now, and to all the team in the NDLS, can I move on just uh, to the first story today? Because I was reading uh, today's uh, um, press releases before I left the house this morning, and the family law system is uh, failing abused women and children in Ireland, according to charity Dublin called Women's Aid. The charity said there was a 43% rise in calls to its helpline during the pandemic. Uh, this particular charity did almost 30,000 contacts involving domestic abuse were made last year. Uh, but let's bring it local. Let's see how Cope Goldberg got on. Let me go to Dr. Carl Bowman, who joins me on the line today. Uh, Carl, would you have seen increases in numbers in Galway, would you? Yes, Keith, good morning. We certainly did uh, experience an increase in demand last year. And as the Women's Aid report highlights, uh, this is something that I think is being experienced the world over. Uh, This, I suppose, has exposed what we would call a pandemic within a pandemic. Domestic abuse has existed as a pandemic before COVID uh, ever uh, raised its head. Um, and what we have seen in the last year is women and children suffering um, through lockdown after lockdown. And that makes it more difficult because obviously because of the lockdown, they're they're with, they're all together uh, as a family unit because that's the way it had to be uh, during lockdown. And then tensions are frayed and children are not um, going out and about or not going to school or otherwise. So then this kind of hot pot bubbles over and then the call has to be made when it gets difficult for all concerned. It does, but I think it's important not to, uh, I suppose, confuse the two. Sometimes we can imagine that the fact that people are cooped up, that certainly adds pressure, but it hasn't caused it. And similarly, you hear about maybe an increase in people drinking at home and you can imagine maybe that increased alcohol abuse has contributed to this. Again, it can aggravate, but again, it didn't cause it. So I think the real issue that we're hearing from women is that they have been literally stuck with their abuser 
and not being able to leave. Either he's not able to leave or she's not able to leave, but it means her chances for reaching out for help, looking for support, looking for any kind of relief, have been seriously curtailed over the last 12 or 15 months. But that that's a very strong statement to say that she was stuck with her abuser or the he was stuck with, you know, it's that's a very strong statement to make, Carl. I think it's it's very, very true. I mean, if you consider in the normal run of things, uh, a woman that we would deal with every day would explain to us that the small relief that she can get, the small pockets of relief come through one of them not being in the home. Either she's at work or he's at work or they're engaged in pastimes or hobbies, that's other things that they do. The children get some release from it as well because they're at school. But through the lockdown periods, we have all been asked to stay at home. And that's absolutely no criticism of the public health measures. They were necessary. They are necessary. And we've all done our best to comply. But an unforeseen effect of that, an unforeseen consequence of that has been that women have been forced to stay at home. Um, and their opportunities to reach out have been very, very limited. I know that you and I spoke a number of times throughout the pandemic and our friends here in local media have been incredibly supportive in helping us get the message out to women to say our services are still open, please get in touch. But what we have have found is is women finding it very difficult to reach out. So they're making calls when they're in the bathroom, shower with running water. They're giving notes to people in shops. They're looking for other ways to, to get in touch because their normal releases aren't there. When you say giving notes to people in, in shops, is that just when I get me out of jail cards? Just please help me. Please help me, yeah. Yes, it is. And and I think that the, the business community and, and all of us in Galway have an obligation to recognise that this happens and to support women when they reach out for help because there, there isn't an opportunity to do other things. There's no other way uh, to get a message out if you don't have a moment to make a call. A woman who calls us won't make that call quickly or easily. Uh, or indeed a woman who calls in and aid, it won't be a quick or easy call. She'll have thought about it for a long, long time before she picks up that phone. And we're aware when we answer that call that she has dreaded making this call because once she does it, she has said it out loud. And when she says it out loud, she has admitted the truth of her circumstances. And that's a really big step for a woman to make. In a pandemic, in this pandemic that we've all been living through over the last year or so, what has happened is that very often a woman isn't even getting the headspace to think that through. Um, so if she's making that call, that will tell you that she is really at the end of the line in terms of what she's able to tolerate. And perhaps they've been tolerating it for quite some time. Yes, that is the case. Absolutely, that is the case. I think the emotional cost um, of living in, in an abusive relationship is huge. We talk a lot about physical abuse and in some ways it's easier to see that and we can all imagine that that must hurt, but the constant humiliation, the constant undermining, the constant limit of movement. Um, we would often hear women describe the lives that they've lost, the freedoms that they no longer have, that they no longer can choose when they get their hair cut, what they eat and when they eat, how they cook, who they see, whether they speak to their family, that all of those things that you and I might take as freedoms uh, and, and things that we just do every day as normal for so many women who live with an abuser, those things have, have long been gone, long been taken from her. And has that, again, it's, it's just thinking outside the box here altogether, but has any um, research been done into the abuser as to why they become such control freaks and that they control when the hair is cut or where they go or 
what they wear well, or what they spend. It probably is. You know, it, it's not, I suppose it's not anything that I'm expert in, so I'm loath to no. comment too specifically on it. Um, certainly what we would see is patterns that come back to values, that there are some people who believe that they have an entitlement and they see that the woman who's sharing their lives is, is an extension of themselves and therefore they believe they're fully entitled to control everything. It's It's ownership. It's absolutely proprietorial, and we can come back to ideas again about gender, how we how we perceive men and women and our respective roles in society. The reality of it is that we believe absolutely wholeheartedly in, in equality. We believe in justice, and we believe in fairness. We believe that every person, man, woman, and child, has an entitlement to respect, to bodily integrity, and to safety in their home. But and if a person is taking that from you, then that person is committing a crime. If that abuser, that person, that partner, that uh, person uh, was watching a TV series on Netflix or otherwise and saw somebody else doing it, they would be horrified. So how does one bring it to the attention of the abuser to say what you're doing is absolutely grotesquely wrong and could have consequences? Now we've seen coercive control uh, cases in Galway uh, going to court and successfully recently indeed uh, going to court but I mean, if they did see it on the TV and saw what they were doing and saw the reality of it, they might not do it. Or am I just talking humbug? I know I don't believe you are talking humbug at all. I think that TV drama literature has something to teach us in that we can often as a society see how we live reflected back through that. And that is always helpful. But I think going a step beyond that, I think how we discuss it, even the conversation that you and I are having here is very, very helpful you know, in helping us all to stop for a moment and think about how do we treat the people we meet and how do we treat the people that we love? How do we treat the people we share our lives with? You know, this goes beyond somebody having a bad mood or a bad temper. That's not what this is at all. comes very much back to values and somebody making a decision that they can be in control because they have the right. But Carl, it's the the abused person here, excuse me, whether the abuser is having a bad day, bad hair day, whatever is going on, that's no reason to pick on another human being and do what you're doing. Absolutely. You know, sometimes a woman might say to us, for example, you know, he's really lovely most of the time, but it only he's only mean when he's drunk. And then we ask, okay, so... But then he shouldn't be drinking. Drink? No, but, but the reality of it is he still chooses. He still selects his victim. So you might have a person who goes out and has a couple of pints with his friends and he's well able to control everything. But then he comes home and he changes. And the reason he's changed is because he has selected and opted to be violent, to be aggressive, to be abusive to her. So it isn't that his behavior is out of control. It's quite the contrary, actually. He has chosen and selected this woman, these children, to be the target of what he chooses to do in that moment. Okay, well, shame shame on him. But look, at this. Um, I mean, you've seen the numbers increasing. What type of percentage would you have seen increasing during the pandemic? Uh, Not as as significant as women's aid. Our outreach in particular, our outreach appointments appointments have uh, really ballooned in the last half of last year by about 89%. Um, Overall, we're probably not that much higher, but certainly in the summer, right around this time, 12 months ago, we would have noted that there was quite a lull in women coming forward. And I think we've spoken about that at the time. I think the Gardaí locally and nationally have been doing tremendous work and are to be commended for that in respect of Operation Fuishas. I think that is showing a huge difference. Um, And I think, though, that domestic abuse is something that we as a community 
really need to be talking about. To go back to your point about whether perpetrators might see this and what might they saw this, for example, as you say, on Netflix and would it give them pause for thought? I think that we all, as right-thinking men and women, need to talk very openly and say, actually, this isn't good enough for the women in our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to accept, I think Women's Aid Report makes that quite clear, this is not something that happens elsewhere. This is happening potentially in your home, in your neighbour's home, in your sister's home, in your colleague's home. These are not nameless, faceless women. They are not statistics. They are women like me and all of the women that you love, Kate, and that you do not want it for them. And if we collectively agree that we do not want it for those women, then we collectively need to say that loud and clear. I was parked somewhere recently uh, waiting for somebody to come out and uh, uh, close to one of your facilities, and I'm not, I'm not saying where, uh, but there was um, a lady pleading on the phone indeed to be left alone. Uh, and the window was open and I could hear part of the conversation, close the window. Uh, but then uh, obviously a, a young son came along and took the phone and sorted the situation. I actually thought it was so sad. I, I kind of left with the pain in my heart. I just thought it was so sad that um, the young lady in question uh, was rescued by a young child. And basically whoever was on the other end of the phone harassing the lady in question was basically told to F off. And the young fella hung up the phone. Just thought he was very brave to do what he did. I think it's a terrible indictment that we put our children in that position, yeah. isn't it? Um, I think that that is something I think that pains us most. Um, and I think women who find themselves in that situation are really stuck. They're doing everything they can to protect their children, everything they can to protect themselves. Um, and as organisations, agencies, a community, we're not always quick to recognise it. I think what you're talking about, if you can imagine for a young boy, we see a lot of that, of children growing up far, far, far too quickly, being aware of... protecting mum. Trying to protect their mum, trying to stand up, and being conflicted because they love their dad, and of course they love their dad. Um, And they need to know that it is okay to love their dad, but not accept behaviour when it is like that. If you're affected by what we're talking about today, um, you can uh, call, indeed, Carl, Dr. Carl Bowman and her colleagues in uh, very much in confidence on 0915659985. It's only one five six five nine eight five. Carl, keep up the good work and thanks for joining Thank us you, uh, today on the programme. Dr. Carl Bowman joining us there on the line. Comment lines are open on 0917700077. Have you been affected? Do you want to tell us? If you do, feel free to uh, text us to 0870 on WhatsApp or you can text us on short code on 53995. We're back up to these. So maybe good news for people coming close to retirement. <laughs> Now, very good morning to you. Welcome in to today's uh, programme. Let me go to Deputy Claire Coran, who joins us on the line, because um, in the last couple of years, indeed, uh, the government have pushed out the age of retirement. Uh, but Claire Coran and Sinn Féin uh, are going before the doll, indeed, with the motion to restore the pension age uh, to 65. Claire, I'd say you're going to get overall uh, support on this one from the public, but politically, will you get the support? It's it's very hard to know, Keith. I suppose uh, we all know this was probably the biggest issue of the election last year. And as is always the case, there's been a lot of talk on this. Fianna Fáil have supported it in the past. So time will tell. But really, in relation to this motion that we'll be debating this evening, there are really two purposes. One is to stop the ongoing situation where people at the age of 65 are told, oh, you're 65 now, so you can't do your job anymore. This is something we had brought forward legislation on 
previously and it was passed unanimously in the House. That is to end mandatory retirement with exemptions. But we really want to see action and progress on that. And second, then, is to stop the situation where people at retirement, usually forced retirement at 65, are being put on a job seeker's rate of €203. And that is taking over €45 a week out of people's pockets. And these are people who may have started work, like my own father, at 15. They've worked for 40, 50 years. And at retirement, they've been given a payment equivalent to the job seeker's rate. And we really don't think that's good enough. And I think the public gave that message loud and clear over a year ago in the election. And we've seen no progress since. Claire, what I'm confused about, and maybe you can kind of settle me a little mind on all of this. Now, it doesn't affect me for, for a while. Um, but I know at the time there was talks about judicial reviews and everything. But how unilaterally can a government decide to change, uh, that they're going to change the age of the pension that people have been paying into, as you said, like your dad since he was 15 years of age, and then decide to hike it up to 66, 67 and keep going from there? Like, what what legal powers do they have to do that? Well, the government can change, the, uh, can increase the pension age tomorrow. Uh, it is laid out in social But is that not a change of the terms and conditions of the contract that one entered into at 15 years of age or 18 when they started working? Well, this is the exact problem. So while the government can change the age in which you get your pension, your state pension, what they can't change in an awful lot of cases because we have mandatory retirement is the contracts and a lot of these are private contracts. And we know in the public service it's been done in recent years and people can work on until they're 70, if they wish. Mm-hmm. Th- th- this isn't a forced situation. It's about choice. Some people want to work on beyond 65. They're willing and able to do so, some for financial reasons and some for social reasons because they really have nothing else in their lives in some cases. And then in other cases, people want to retire at 65. They've done their day's work for years and years and years and they want to get their pension. But the difficulty is the government have obviously increased the state pension age, but there is a gap that's obviously been there now since 2014 for those retiring at 65. And what we're looking for is the state pension transition payment that had been paid, that was abolished in 2014, paid at the same rate as the state pension to come back to pay those a state pension rate who have to retire at 65. And the second option then, of course, is removing that mandatory retirement, which won't be easy to do. A lot of these are private contracts but a lot of countries have abolished monetary retirement and we should be able to follow suit. And as I said, this was unanimously passed in the all by all parties, government and all. So we really want to see action progressed on this. It's not going to be easy, but it should be something that we aim to do uh, as soon as possible. Uh, and we know people are going to be working longer, longer working lives. But we also need to make sure that where people are working longer, they can actually make their contributions into the state pension, which isn't currently the situation for anyone working beyond the age of 65. But again, I go back to the whole confusion side of things, and with all due respect, uh, Dr. Karen, you haven't you haven't settled my mind on this one. They're still changing terms and conditions uh, of when one can draw down the pension that one has been paying into and contributing to since the age of eighteen. Yes, and that's exactly the problem, and that's why we're shouting stop in relation to any further increases in the state pension, which will widen the gap. If we remove, uh, if we abolish mandatory retirement tomorrow. I can decide at 65, I don't want to go on a job seeker's payment. I'm going to work on for a year. I'll work on for a year and I'll get my state pension. The government are the ones that keep moving the goalposts. And we are now in a situation where the pension age is set to increase to 67 and 68. That's been put on hold by a commission of pensions that are due to report at the end of this month. But we're now hearing they won't. And of course, that lines up nicely with the the by-election that's coming up. 
uh, and what kind of uh, a government want to announce at this point in time a further increase. But that's what's coming down the tracks. So what we want to see is a state pension payment paid to people who have to retire at 65, typically forced to retire at 65 because of their contract. Okay. And secondly, we want to see a situation where they get their state pension payment rather than losing out €2,300 a year on the job seekers' payment. All right. Well, good luck with this. I hope you get cross-party support on it. Uh, but Deputy Claire Coran, thank you indeed for joining us uh, today on the programme. Now, I was just, again, just catching up on stuff, but an alternative report on extending the Western Rail Corridor from Athenry County Gova to Clare Morris and County Mayo has been strongly contradicted and the findings of an official report. And the earlier report carried out by consultants EY for the Department of Transport, you remember? We were waiting long enough to get our hands on that. It was published in December 2020 last and concluded the case for the reopening um, of the uh, disused railway line uh, was weak. Lo and behold, another report comes. How many more reports can we have on this one? 200-page report written by former ER, uh, ESRI research professor Dr John Bradley has rebutted the key findings of the department's reports and has concluded that capital costs of restoring the 54-kilometre railway line are 50% lower uh, than what was in the original report. I need to go and take a breath of fresh air at this stage. Um, Deputy Kieran Cannon, can you make sense of this as you uh, as you're on the train this morning? Can you make sense of this? Um, well, Keith, can I just point out from the very outset, those of us who have been advocating for almost a decade now, some of us, for the development of a greenway on that line connecting Athenry to um, Ballycoon and uh, June, Milltown, and all the way to Enniskillen, we ultimately what we want to see is something, some beneficial use being made of a piece of infrastructure that we, the taxpayer, people own that has been lying idle for 40 years. And we're becoming exceptionally frustrated at this point in time. We've had two uh, independently commissioned reports carried out uh, by experts in uh, transport infrastructure, both in here in Ireland and indeed in the European Investment Bank. They forensically analysed uh, the current and future demands on that line and came to the conclusion that it does not make sense right now or at any point in the near medium term to reinstate a rail service on okay. that line. All we're, all we're saying, Keith, is, is something very simple. If and when it becomes necessary to put a rail service on it, let's do that. But in the interim, please do not leave this piece of infrastructure that's rotting in the ground, that's providing no benefit to the small villages and towns of East Galway and northwards all the way up to Mayo and Sligo. Just please can we do something with it. And what I would ask the people who are advocating again um, uh, this week uh, for the reinstatement of that rail line, first of all, could they publish that report they're referring to? Because so far none of us have been able to uh, see a copy of it. They're quoting extensively from it. Can we see it? And um, Secondly, I would argue the point, Keith, that if you have an entity that has been advocating for the reinstatement of a rail service on a rail line, uh, then commissions a report, one shouldn't be surprised that the conclusion of that report is that exact thing, that we should reinstate the rail line service. So, you know, the, the two reports you referred to earlier on were independently commissioned, carried out independently uh, by experts in, in Ireland and indeed in Brussels, and they concluded that at this point in time, it makes no sense whatsoever. It would be a massive waste of taxpayers' money to reinstate a rail service from McEnroe to Clare Morris. Okay. And in fact, Keith, and in fact, Keith, what Eamon Ryan is doing right now is commissioning yet another report on double tracking the line from Athenry to Ormore and on to Galway City, which I would argue is ultimately the wisest investment we can make in rail services in the west of Ireland right now. There's huge demand on that line. If you consider, Keith, in 2013, 
there were 5,500 people travelling from Old North Galway every day on that rail line. That figure is now 56,000. Um, it's an extraordinary um, increase um, in terms of the, the use of those that service from Athenry or, or in Galway. That's where we need what, to make uh, What do you mean by 56 what? 56,000? Uh, yeah, my apologies. That's the answer. The annual uh, that's the annual figure. The annual figure for, and these are these are um, figures provided by Irish Rail themselves. The annual figure from Ormore to Galway City was 5,522 in 2013. Uh, in 2018, which is the most recent figures we have, it went up to 54,417 people um, getting on that train in Ormore every day and travelling to Galway. That's where, and a significant and similar increase in Athenride. That's where the real demand is occurring right now okay. for rail well, services in East Galway. That's you, where we need to make the investments. We'll come back on this one then, because I'm lo- I'm, an, I'm flipping ten years talking about this. So yeah, who can draw a line in the sand on today's date, um, which is the twenty second okay. of June? Uh, no, bear with me on the question of June the okay. twenty yeah, sure. second, twenty twenty one. I want someone to draw a line in the sand and say. We're going to do the railway line or we're going to turn it into a greenway. Yeah, and and that's it. It's off the agenda for 10 years unless something else comes on the agenda in the meantime. I mean, that's that's what needs to be done here. It is, Keith, and that's my deepest fear, um, that we will be, you and I will be speaking on the phone again in 10 years' time uh, and that line will be still rotting and musty in the ground. That is a, but uh, is it I Eamon Ryan that can draw a line in the sand here, the Minister for he Transport? Can. He can. Um, Minister for Transport um, commissioned two reports, the previous one, Shane Ross. Current Minister of Transport published those reports. They concluded um, without any doubt whatsoever, it makes no sense to put a rail service on that line. So, but Eamon but, Ryan is now why is it continuing and, and then? Why, is it con- why not Eamon just Ryan stop it now? Because Eamon Ryan has now gone back and commissioned another report called the All-Ireland Rail uh, Transport Review, um, which is looking at, you know, if we look at Ireland, the island as a whole, is there some added necessity or benefit um, accruing from the development of rail services along the Western Rail Corridor? Um, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, Keith, that by the end of this year, that we we will have the findings of that report and it will make yet again the same conclusions of all the previous reports. It makes no sense now or any point in the future to do this. Um, And then, Keith, um, and we finally have the way clear for the development of the Greenway. And we've always said that if and when it makes sense in 2040, 2050, 2060, whenever it is, um, to to put a rail service, let's do it and let's spend the money then when it doesn't make sense to spend money. But right now, at a point when from a pandemic when we need to look at the resources we have to expend on public transport nationally you need to prioritise those uh, lines that have a huge demand and, and that line from Athenry and all more into Galway the report has been done right now on the double tracking of it that's where we okay. need to make the investment in rail services in County Galway keep not on something that has been dismissed over and over and over again by experts here in Ireland and in Bus- I mean, the, the, the it kind of reminds you of sorry to go across here but kind of you go on the European Investment Bank is the very entity, the very entity we would be turning to to fund this uh, rail service from Athenite Cars. And they made the following, and I, I, and I want to quote from their report, verbatim, Keith. There is no evidence of transport or social constraints that any investment in this corridor is required to meet. The project in its current form is likely to present a very weak justification for investment. We consider that gaining support for project financing of the proposal in its current form would be a challenge 
And finally, and this is, the, you know, the, this mythical demand for freight that everybody talks about when they when they advocating for a rail line, um, the, the experts in the European Investment Bank said the weak forecast demand and the limited role for freight would limit the ability of the project to attract grant funding. That's the entity we would turn to to ask for funding for a, a major, major investment in rail in the west of Ireland. And they're telling us already it makes no sense. So um, all we're saying, Keith, is, you know, please can we draw, as you argue, quite vehemently, and as I do, draw a line in the sand. One way or the other. The investment, yeah, one way or the other, and make an investment. Don't please let this piece of crucial public infrastructure that connects Athenride to Ballyglune to Tune to Milltown and onto Swinford, Ballina, Sligo, okay. all the way to Inniskillen. And, and while you have one arm of the Department of Transport out there right now um, finalising um, plans to develop a greenway on that line in Sligo, Right? You have another section of it already um, earmarked for another um, leisure project in, in uh, near Swinford. Um, so, you know, the, the, the Irish Rail have already granted a licence to Mayo County Council to develop a leisure facility on the line for the next 13 years. And meanwhile, we're looking at a rotting, rusting hulk um, okay. sitting in the middle of the Hume Town. Um, you know, it's, it makes yes. no sense, Keith. It's deeply frustrating. I've been asking Eamon okay. Ryan, and I will continue to ask Eamon Ryan, to draw the line of the sand as you, the case you make and let's move on and make a decision here in Central All right, let's do that then. But thank you for joining us uh, today. We'll also get on to uh, Minister Hildegard Nocton uh, because she's in that department as well as the Department of Justice. And uh, we will get back to that hopefully later in the programme uh, today. That line just needs to be drawn uh, in the sand from there. It's 9.47 now. <laughs> Hey, very good morning to you now. John Mulligan joins me on the line. We're looking at sport uh, today and Adam Hessian from Monave will be boxing for a place in the final of the European Championships uh, today in Italy. And uh, John, morning to you. Good morning, Keith. Thanks for joining us uh, today. Great, great, great uh, day for um, young Adam Hessian in this regard. How do you think he'll do, John? I reckon he's got a fantastic chance, to be honest with you. Um, he's up against a, a Polish boxer by the name of Pavel Brak, uh, who is uh, highly rated. Remember, these other 22s are, you know, the, the best of the best when it comes to, to European boxing and uh, also in world rankings. Now, he had a good win over a German boxer yesterday, uh, Bashir Bajwa, but uh, today is where he, this will be a real test for, for Adam. But he's very experienced. He's a, a former National League champion. I mean, the guy is a top quality fighter and uh, he is one there's a lot of people expecting great things from and I'm one of them to be honest with you uh, no joy for Kieran Malloy yesterday though he was beaten by England's Harris Akbar uh, so his European journey came to an end but uh, you've also two other Irish boxers involved today Dean Clancy and Jack Marley as well Dean Clancy's from Sligo and uh, Jack Marley's from Monkstown so we wish them the best luck but I have a feeling Adam Hessian could do very well tonight it's a 6 o'clock start by the way the fight is live on the EUB the YouTube channel where they have both rings uh, in action as well for people who want to watch it so that gets underway at 6 o'clock this evening Alright, now the Gubba team to face Dublin in the Leinster under 20 hurling final uh, tomorrow, that's been named any major changes? 
The four of them uh, from the team that beat Kilkenny in the semi-final in December. Uh, you know Alex Canary, Adrian Prendergast, they're both out through injury, so uh, their place is taken by Adam Brett and Mark Kennedy. Uh, you have Owen Lawless coming in to the full-back line instead of Oisín Sam and John Cooney's in the corner forward position instead of Oisín Flannery. Uh, TJ Brennan is the captain. Must remember that this is an All-Ireland semi-final as well as being a Leinster final because uh, the way the under-20 hurling championship uh, is formulated that uh, the winners of Munster and Leinster meet each other in the All-Ireland Final. And this is the 2020 competition. This is the competition that uh, uh, somehow wasn't concluded, even though nearly everywhere else was. Uh, but at Leinster, it wasn't. So um, this is the 2020 All-Ireland Final. If Goy win tomorrow night, it will be Cork in the, in the All-Ireland Final. And it's a half-seven throw-in in O'Connor Park in Tullamore. And it's live here on Goy Bay as well. Now, some great news indeed for Kyle Brack and Torlock Moore when it comes to the Olympics. Yeah, this is a great story that came to light last night. Cahal uh, Daniels um, confirmed it on his own Facebook page that he has been nominated by uh, Horseport Ireland for selection uh, to the uh, Olympic Games. Now, of course, what they do is they are the national governing bodies uh, then send forward their nominations to the Olympic Council of Ireland who then named them officially on the Olympic team. So Carl will be involved in the three-day eventing. Um, he's already had a fantastic run up to this particular event. In fact, he was uh, uh, in the top 10 in Le Moulin and their five-star event in Germany at the weekend, so he's coming in on form. He's taken. He's uh, going to take his old faithful, as I, as I call her, uh, the Mayor Rian Rua, has been with him for nearly 14 years at this stage. A fantastic mayor, brilliant jumper. Uh, Margaret and Frank Kinsler uh, own her and uh, that would be the team that would be going to, to Tokyo for the three-day eventing. Now, it's uh, also uh, been announced that Michael Duffy, and I got this confirmed last night as well, thanks to Catherine Duffy for uh, giving me the information, because I actually got a message last night saying that he had made the Olympic team. So in confirming these things as you do, um, I found out that uh, he is a non-travelling reserve. Now, what, what happens is, is that four will travel, uh, from uh, from Ireland for the show jumping three will jump and there's a travelling reserve and then there's a non-travelling reserve who is kind of fifth in line so if Michael is to go to the Olympic Games two will have to drop out but still to be that close to selection and anything can happen between now and July a horse can go lame a rider can you know with Covid and everything else anything's possible so he will have to uh, be on the top of his game and be ready if the call up comes he has a brilliant horse in Zilton ZL they were in Santra at the weekend finished fifth after a jump off nothing between the first six in that so uh, he's also going in on form so you know you don't want to wish unwell to any of the team but you know it would be fantastic if he did make it uh, Briefly then the um, English managers waiting for news about the game against the Czech Republic tonight Yes, he is. And this is all following from England's game with Scotland uh, last uh, weekend where it finished nil all. But the news uh, didn't emerge that Billy Gilmore had tested positive for COVID. And two England players um, have been uh, called, uh, has been named as close contacts, Mason Mount and Ben Chilwell. Now, a lot of questions being asked in English circles, and understandably so, that uh, how come they're close contacts, but I mean, everybody else in the Scotland squad who shared a dressing room with them are not. So uh, it does add a little bit of bite to tonight's games because Scotland can qualify for the last 16 of the Euros if they beat Croatia. England are already there on the back of last night's wins for Denmark and Belgium, so uh, they don't have to worry too much. They take on the Czech Republic, but it would be a big result for Scotland if they were to qualify. They've never qualified for the knockout stages of a major championship, hard to believe. 
but in the amount of times that they've been there. But uh, this is probably an opportunity for them. But that does cast a shadow over uh, tomorrow night's games. And as I said, adds a bit of bite too. All right, uh, racing-wise, where are you after today? Yeah, it's all cross-channel today. Just before I mention as well, the Lions team is going to be named at 11 o'clock to face Japan in uh, Edinburgh on Saturday. And uh, racing is all cross-channel. Newbury, Air, Beverly, Brighton and Newton, Abbott and our tip um, is Amir Kabir. It runs in Newbury in the 6.30. All right, uh, thanks John for that. Uh, John Mulligan and the team on the RV are here on Goldberg FM. So if you want to catch up on sport, uh, just stay tuned right throughout the day. John will keep you comprehensively covered right throughout the day and uh, today and Darren as well. Comment lines open if you want to get through to us uh, today on 0917700077 and 53995 uh, today. And you can also call us here on 0917700077. Now that let's head towards the Goldberg BFM news desk for the 10 o'clock news. Stay tuned for that and much more to come between now and midday. Galway Bay FM Sports News with Western Motors Ballybrit offering 0% PCP finance on most new Volkswagen models. Now, what a difference a day makes uh, because yesterday morning on this uh, very programme we spoke with Paul Cribben and uh, Senator Oliver Crowe in relation to pubs and that. And then during the programme we had got a statement uh, from Heather Humphreys via indeed um, Senator Ollie Crowe as well. And we read that out and that then became the template indeed for Drew Harris to send out uh, a message indeed to all Gardaí and to tread with caution. Uh, while all of this was unfolding, there was indeed... Um, Guard the policing uh, joint policing uh, committee meeting, which was chaired by Constable Neil McNeilis, and he joins me on the line today. Neil, good morning to you. Good morning, Keith. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. Uh, so while we were discussing this, he started a meeting yesterday morning at uh, eleven o'clock. And uh, what is the current status of the serving of alcohol with food um, in Galway City? Well, the current status there at the moment is that it was outlined that they had started the year with the path ahead that we would have uh, an, an, an emphasis on outdoor activity. Um, and what was highlighted on the 7th of May by the guards and the City and County Managers Association was that there was an issue in relation to the licence of the premises outside the, the bars. Um, the Chief Superintendent then in Galway um, had instructed his guardie to visit the premises last week and to just, again, as, as part of their 4E strategy that they use for their policing, to engage, explain, encourage compliance, and then as a last resort, enforce. Um, so they've been asked to have an element of discretion. Um, and then again, is what's happened here is that the guardie themselves don't like that because uh, we've seen what happened in the past when they showed discretion in other matters. We ended up having tribunals and guardie um, being suspended. And the last thing we want is any Garda uh, being put in a situation where they're not actually able to enforce the law. Because at the end of the day, the policing in this country is, is, is a policing of consent and working with the public. Mm-hmm. Um, no fines have ever been issued in Galway. No uh, in, uh, uh, equipment or tables and chairs have been removed by the Garda. But what has been done is that they've engaged, they've explained and they've encouraged compliance. And now what they're looking for is clarification from the government. What Drew Harris yesterday, in my opinion, again, is just really flooding the water, right? It's like, do I turn a blind eye to something going wrong here? What happens when something goes wrong at one of these premises? That's why discretion doesn't work. The only way around this is national legislation. Now, the ministry yesterday turned around, Keith, and she said that it's up to the local government. They can actually introduce a bylaw. 
everybody knows in government that the Local Government Act of 2001 states that to publish a bylaw takes up to eight weeks to adopt, minimum. Now, you can't do that because the summer will be over by then. But can there, right? can there so, be a Chief Executive's order the likes of Mr McGrath in Galway City no. Council? Can he? No. He can't do that? No. It's due to licensing laws. So the only thing around this is actually emergency legislation, quick piece of legislation. The Minister sits down with the Attorney General at Cabinet and they can actually turn around and figure out how to sort this out. Again, what was stressed yesterday by the Chief Tom Curley was he doesn't want to be a killjoy. He just wants clarification of this anomaly. And it's very disingenuous then from the minister to turn around and say that local government should, you know, go off and form bylaws. We've, we've had that big conversation over the last number of months about our own existing drink bylaws in the city that are unenforceable and are very difficult to use. And what we need here at the moment is to make sure that the pubs can provide that, that safe service that they already do because they're a licensed premises. But a licensed premises is actually the bricks and mortar and where your license is for. So you have to go to court to actually turn around and say, my licence premises is in such a square footage around my building. And again, as Paul Cribben and those that spoke to you, that's the, that's the law. And they've known about this for a while. As I said, yeah. the 7th of May, this was raised by the guards and the, and the City and County Managers Association. So what needs to be done now here is, is kicking it down the road by saying discretion doesn't work. Um, and what we need now is legislation. And that, and that legislation can be added on to existing licensing laws and it can be, they've done numerous bits of legislation for the COVID, and that's what's needed right now. Okay, but, the, but I mean... The, stands at the moment, yeah. No, but I mean, just looking at Minister Humphrey's uh, statement that I brought with me to studio today, the same one stands as of yesterday. I've had been in regular contact with the Guard of the Commissioner on the issue of outdoor dining and how best on Guard Chicano will work to facilitate us enjoying an outdoor summer. We spoke again this morning, this was yesterday. The Commissioner has reassured me and did so again this morning, that discretion... Uh, will continue to be applied by Gardaí, Gardaí Síochána in their engagement with licensed premises. The Commissioner will be sending out a communication across the Gardaí organisation this morning to that effect. The overwhelming majority of licensed premises are operating safely and we in government are determined to continue to support them. If local issues arise, I would urge local authorities, Gardaí and businesses to engage. However, I will also examine whether further measures are required from government. Licensing laws is a complex area, but I spoke to the Attorney General this morning and we will take further action if necessary. I mean, I thought that was a very positive statement yesterday, coming in early yesterday morning from the Minister for Justice. Well, I think everything was going ground there until if necessary. So if it is necessary, that's the first thing. The second thing is, again, is this word discretion. So what happens when somebody and something happens? And, you know, a blind eye was thrown here. We've seen what's happened in the past when guards have been accused of turning a blind eye to something. And, you know, unfortunately, is that we've got a large-scale amount of premises which are absolutely brilliant to have back open because now they can take away the crowds from the Spanish Arch and around from the canals and whatever like that. I mean, it's a safe environment. And we've always said that licensed premises is the place to have licensed drinks been sold. But what happens if something goes wrong? Using the word discretion doesn't back up those publicans doesn't back up the guarantee as well. No, and I, said, and I started by saying yesterday morning, by the way, that this is not an individual guard, the sergeant, superintendent, or otherwise, no. this is down to the Department of Justice doing their job, and they knew that this was coming. I think they thought that it might go away, but you can't be very vague giving uh, the guard the, well, do your best, but, you know, just be nice to them. And that, that that discretion thing goes out the window, as you said, uh, because it complicates Completely. matters. And, and at all times, the wording was used by outdoor dining. It never said outdoor drinking. It never said, you know, outdoor socialising, outdoor dining. And my Galway City Council has section, you know, the two five, section 254s and introduced the tables and chairs policy. That's the licence to put out street furniture. It's not a licence for eating, 
ban license for, for drinking. And part of that Section 254, you have to be compliant with the, the, the licensing and mm. the alcohol uh, laws. So again, is what's needed here is legislation. It can be done. It can be done very, very quickly. It's been flagged by absolutely everybody well in advance of this. Okay. It's not just a Galway situation. It just happened to be that the, the Chief Superintendent and the Guardian Galway were doing their job perfectly normal and engaged again and explained and encouraged compliance with each of the, 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 okay. the licenses. But at the moment, there's huge confusion, frustration and anger by both the, the licensed and the hospitality industry and the Gardaí themselves. And the GRA and the representative associations that I've spoken to in the last few hours are turned around and told me that they're um, certainly more clarification. And, and the chief, Tom Curley, is doing his best. He's got a really good, strong budget team. We don't have, we're not in any state and never war. Our whole policing model in this country has always been policing by consent and working with the public. But again, is I think it's a bit rich that the Minister for Justice turns around to discretion. Keith, mm. that doesn't make sense. All right. Well, discretion it will be until such time as uh, the legislation is presented. Thank you for joining us uh, today. Uh, that is indeed Councillor Neil McNeil is uh, joining us on the line. Now, though, let me go to the telephone lines at uh, this stage. And I want to go back to he- Heroes Aid. And uh, Mary Leahy, Chief Executive of Heroes Aid, uh, joins me on the line today. Uh, Mary, good morning to you. How are you? Good to talk to you again. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you, Keith. I just correct you there. I'm actually not the Chief Executive. We've just appointed somebody. I'm just the founder and a board member. I was giving you the full title, so I was. From there. <laughs> the, the full, and I won't. I, I the, best not take it, just in case. The full mo- And who has been appointed, or can you say yet? Uh, no, we've just only appointed him this weekend, so he's not formally, he's starting in a week, so I best keep that under wraps until then. Good stuff. Now, I mean, you, you did, I mean, you started this um, early on in the pandemic, so you, you spotted uh, there was a niche there indeed uh, that needs to be filled. Yes, Keith. Well, I suppose I've always had an interest in the health and welfare of healthcare staff because all of the research will show that if health, if the healthcare staff are in a good place and and looked after that the outcomes for service users are far greater. And of course, you know, you've been on the radio many, many years discussing the recruitment and retention issues. And the research will also show that when staff are looked after well and that the the retention uh, figures are much greater within different healthcare settings. So it's in all of our interests that... I guess healthcare workers are, I suppose, in, are healthy themselves. And what was your vision when you set this up then? I mean, what, what vision did you have? First of all, I wouldn't think well, you would have I thought the pandemic would have lasted this long. Exactly. I suppose there wasn't necessarily a vision. It was, you'll, you'll remember, Keith, that there was a huge problem with accessing PPE. That's right. So it kind of, we hit the ground running. We knew that we could do something to help. To help and a few of us healthcare workers got together and um, we had a large WhatsApp group at the time. I think it was about 3,000 members on a WhatsApp group, 3,000 colleagues, because at the time we didn't know what we were dealing with. And we were looking to Italy to see what was happening there, which was quite uh, quite awful. And we expected the same. So we were kind of learning on our feet. And at the same time, I suppose the world was experiencing difficulties um, getting PPE, but Ireland in particular, because we were such a small country. So we put it to our colleagues on the WhatsApp group as to what kind of support they wanted. And they all came back with PPE. At the time, they couldn't think past that barrier that they needed to be created between themselves and and their service users and that. So it was PPE was the, the issue at the time. So we fundraised and thankfully the public, as, as Irish always are, very generous, helped us out. And we bought PPE from various countries in the world and 
provided at the time to over 1,400 different settings. And the service we provided, Keith, was... I mean, the HSE were providing PPE, but there were gaps at the time because of the challenges. So we filled those gaps and allowed the services to continue mm-hmm. and protected frontline and in, in doing so protected patients. And how much money have you raised to date, can I ask? Top of your um, We would have exceeded half a million at this stage. That's over a year. But, you know, I think it's it's our overheads are far... We're all doing this on a voluntary basis, so our overheads are far less than than the official, I suppose, services that provide PPE. So we were able to do an awful lot more with less. Well, but then everything then that was related then just goes uh, onto the onto the, the front line then uh, from there. Exactly, I mean, exactly. When, when, I, when I think about it, I mean, PPE now is just, I mean, we take PPE now for granted. And we I, do, I, we do. And I do remember the Aer Lingus planes going out to China and coming back full and all the seats were full. And I mean, there was planes after plane loads of plane loads of stuff coming in. But now, if you're going into a nursing home or a hospital setting, PPE is just... Second nature, you'd kind of feel naked. It, it, if you didn't it's have everywhere. It. It's, <laughs> you'd it's feel everywhere. naked if you didn't now. have it on you. Exactly, exactly. So it's the norm, you know, now. So, but then we moved from, what, I suppose, the physical PPE to what we would call the psychological PPE. Yeah. So once the HSE addressed, and it wasn't that they didn't address it, it was that there was restrictions all over the world. So once that issue, I suppose, became less of an issue, um, again, our colleagues would have said really what they wanted now was psychological PPE because they're just burnt out and exhausted. So we moved then to providing mental health and well-being provision uh, af- yeah. after the PPE was addressed. And how is that going to work then? I mean, because you're launching free mental health and well-being support for all frontline healthcare workers and it's going to be a 24-hour helpline as well. Yeah, so we've we've platformed it on our website, Keith. So it's it's available free to all healthcare workers. That that could be from the porter to the um, HCAs, the healthcare attendants, to nurses, doctors, physios, anybody at all that's on the front line in healthcare can avail of this. And also, I suppose while we acknowledge that some of those services are already provided within what um, healthcare settings, there are an awful lot of staff who don't avail of them for various reasons. And also we have staff who are not in the mainstream. We have staff out in nursing homes, in kind of remote settings, and also healthcare is a 24-7 service. So the service that we're providing free of charge is available on our website, which is heroesaid.ie forward slash hub. And it's um, basically one-on-one counselling. It's also um, self-help courses. There's a 24 helpline. So there's a lot of information and, and courses on, on sleep, on how to de-stress, on um, meditation, on lots of things that will help frontline healthcare workers because it's important to say, Keith, that this isn't just because of COVID. I think COVID was the catalyst in that we had about 13 years leading up to COVID where healthcare workers were put to the pin of their collars because you recall the economic crash mm. where I suppose there was a moratorium, numbers were reduced and the demands on in healthcare have increased. So that sort of stress has, has been there for quite a while, but I think COVID was the icing on the cake, so to speak, for a lot of healthcare workers. It is, but I think then so many people came home and some people went back into the service and some people went, you know, a lot of people, I mean, when, when the call went out, Ireland's call went out, uh, people did respond from there. But like, we're, we're, we're a year and a half into it now at this stage, more than a year and a half into it uh, at this stage. So, I mean, every, I think everyone, uh, from, from a medical point of view, medical care point of view, have been flat to the floor for the last year and a half. I don't care whether you're a, 
uh, I don't mind, you know, it can be the receptionist in the GP surgery, it can be the GP themselves, the nurse, the, you know, uh, as you said, the attendant. It's, it's just, it's been a very stressful year and a half for everyone. It has, it has been incredible and, and it, it has been stressful on both a professional level and personal level. You know, on a professional level, we had staff recalling stories to us where, I suppose, working in PPE at the outset is a huge challenge in that a lot of staff would even have said that the routine was to bring a second set of underwear to work because they were just saturated with sweat from the heat of working within that, yeah. within those type of, um, I suppose, wearing, wearing PPE like that. The second issue that they would have said was the inability to communicate with, with patients and service users that we take so much for granted with facial recognition and now that we have masks and visors and all of these things, there's a barrier created there and yeah. of course a, lo- a lot of persons using the service would have known that family couldn't come in and help and that's a huge issue to have a family member there to support patients when they're sick. An, when an they're advocate gone. for the patient, yes. Absolutely, it, it places an awful lot more um, psychological and physical sort of a burden on healthcare staff and so there was all of the, the obvious issues within the workplace but then there was a lot of personal issues where we've had a lot of staff who would say that their day increased hugely and that they would go into work a lot earlier because of all of the procedure in donning the, the PPE and getting ready. And when they would come home from work, they would have a procedure where they would maybe, some of them used their garages, others used utility rooms where there was a process where they would take everything off and bag their mobile phones, their keys, everything had to be sterilised and cleaned. And they couldn't hug their family members or their children didn't often understand that. So there was a kind of a coldness perceived where they would just go straight to a shower. And then the fear of contaminating family and family members, elderly, relatives. A lot of our colleagues... Yeah, a lot of our colleagues moved out of home, actually, for safety reasons, because they did have vulnerable older members of family, or some of our colleagues had children with special needs or other sort of challenges to deal with. So it impacted hugely professionally and personally, and it was very isolating for staff. You know, that I think a lot of non-healthcare staff were taking in nature or, you know, there was such a different kind of a... Yeah, I suppose a, an experience and on the other hand healthcare workers had to up their game and they, they were quite isolated in doing that you know it's, it's, it has been how can people um, how can people access indeed uh, the healthcare that you're talking about from Heroes Aid yeah well if they just log on to Heroes Aid spelled H-E-R-O-E-S-A-I-D dot I-E forward slash hub and we have an Instagram and Facebook account as well Keith so you can log on to any of our platforms and find the services from there and more than welcome to to use them obviously that they're for all healthcare workers. Keep up the good work. Thanks indeed for joining us. So just go to Heroes Aid, just put it in. If you're a member of the healthcare uh, profession at, at any level, uh, just put in Heroes Aid and uh, you'll get the full details uh, from there. Mary Leahy, founder indeed and board member of Heroes Aid. Thank you for joining us uh, today on the programme. 10.27 now. <laughs> Very good morning to you on this uh, Tuesday morning. Uh, we're with you right through until 12 midday. Now, any time that we speak uh, to the Galway Rape Crisis Centre and Cathy Connolly and the team down there, and they talk about the supports that they have in place. And one of those supports, indeed, as well as Cope Galway, the support they have is that they accompany people to court. Uh, well, uh, new research has been conducted on the operation of rape trials in Ireland, uh, drawing on the experience and the views of legal professionals involved in rape trials and uh, court accompaniment 
workers supporting complainants as well. Uh, the research was done by Dr. Susan Leahy of the University of Limerick uh, in from the School of Law there and she joins me on the line today. And uh, Dr. Leahy, good morning to you. Good morning, thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for joining us. I suppose it's such a a sensitive area as well and I went through the report last night I have to say it's very comprehensively done and well done to you on it I think that there are lessons that can be learned from this Yeah, there's definitely a lot of lessons I suppose it's it's, it's the first time in recent history that someone has um, spoken to people who work within these trials um, in an Irish context and I think that, that in itself is really important because these trials take place in private and even as an academic who has worked in this area for over a decade now, you know, I haven't sat through a rape trial. Um, I write about them a lot, but I don't know the practicalities of them. So um, it's been great to get the perspective of people who work in the area. And I suppose the good news is that, like you mentioned in your introduction, there's some really wonderful work being done to support people who have to go through this trial process. So the court accompaniment workers do really fantastic work. Um, and we've had a lot of developments as well in terms of, you know, there's, there's a fabulous uh, court complex and victim support services available in the central criminal courts in, in Dublin as well. Yeah. But there's a lot that we need to get better. And I suppose one of the main things that came through from my report, um, all of the court accompaniment workers in particular, their primary concern was delay. And they spoke about the fact about how delays and adjournments compound the trauma for people who are giving mm. evidence. You can imagine if you're psyching yourself up to give evidence as a complainant in, in a trial like this um, and you think your trial is going to go ahead today and you turn up in court and you're ready to go um, and then it's put off for maybe a period of months. Um, that's very traumatic and um, it creates a lot of uncertainty for people um, and not just the practical things like you've gotten time off work and you've prepared yourself, but also puts your healing on hold because you can imagine, you know, you are waiting to give your evidence. You can't fully heal or or, or put um, what has happened behind you to any extent until you have that trial process over. So delay is one of the big issues that came through it is, from, but, the, from the court of company workers. But Susan, just, I mean, if, if we've, we've on this programme over the last long number of years, we've spoken about this, mm-hmm. uh, but when, when a, a rape uh, occurs... Um, and then it's the decision, what do I do? Do I stay quiet or do I do something about this? And then if you make the complaint to the Gardaí and then the process starts, then the, un- the unfortunate victim in this regard loses total control of where the case goes because then it goes to the DPP, all the tests are done, all of that is done. And the book of um, evidence is served on both sides. But I, I, I've spoken to some people who have been through this process on this programme and more often than not, a lot of them regret the fact that they've done it. Some of them are delighted that they've done it and taken that first step so the person doesn't get to do it to somebody else. Um, but I think, that's when I, when I said to you their lessons have been learned, the delay is one uh, aspect of this, but I think other lessons have been learned as well. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that the complainant in this situation and the person who's been raped in this situation is not treated with the utmost of respect, uh, but in, in the court setting, from speaking with them, it can be very intimidating for them because it's their word against somebody else's. Yeah, entirely. And there, there is no doubt about it. It's an intensely traumatic process. Um, and I think it is a real challenge for um, victims in these cases because they're handing what they see as their case over to the state um, 
it's very hard to think of yourself as a witness, which is what in our current system, unfortunately, victims are, are still thought of, even though particularly more so than any other trial, as a complainant or a victim and in a case like this, you um, your evidence is, is at the foremost um, and it's one person's word against another. And one of the things I'm proposing in my report is that we need more support for people who are going through this process. So I do a lot of work on the, in general the rights of victims of crime who are, who are involved as witnesses in all tar- types of criminal cases. And there are some good provisions already in Ireland in giving legal representation to complainants when yeah. they are um, when there's an application for the introduction of their sexual experience evidence or their counselling records. Here in my report I'm proposing we go much further and we developed, develop a more sophisticated legal advocacy service for someone so that from the very moment you think about reporting you get advice from the get-go and that that's available to you throughout the process. Um, and what I think is even more, uh, is, it can be even more important at times is that support throughout the trial, but also after the trial, so that you can find out why certain, you maybe have explained to you why certain evidence went in or did not go in, or yeah. why certain things happened during a trial. Because I know in, the, in my research, particularly again, what court accompaniment workers said to me was, sometimes um, people have questions as to you know, why they had to leave the court for a period of time why evidence that they feel is really important wasn't admitted. Um, And to have someone to ask those questions to is really, really important because information here is key. If if you're uncertain, if you don't have all the information about your case, that's really isolating and compounds again the harm and trauma of course. But but once the complaint is made, um, uh, Dr. Susan Leahy, and the DPP uh, decides there's a case uh, to be answered here, uh, Mm -hmm. so on one side you've got the prosecution, on the other side, you've got the defence, and the defence's uh, role is to try and get the person uh, that's been prosecuted uh, off on, on legal technicalities or, or just to tell the truth or otherwise. And that, from speaking to victims who have been in court, not just in relation to rape trials, but in relation to domestic abuse, in relation to other wrongdoings, it's very intimidating. And I think the court process, uh, and again, you've you've looked very much at this. I think the court the, the court process has got to come down to a level that everyone can understand. It does, and and I think there's definitely more and more things that we can do in our system, um, to protect um, people who are giving evidence and to protect victims. Um, greater use of special measures, greater greater use of um, support during the process. But I do think, in particular, and I suppose this is a particular hobby horse of mine information is so important because yeah. I think if, if people go through, they understand why things are happening the way they are. They know what the next steps are and they can have a reasonable expectation of how long a case will take to go through and how long a trial will go on for. All of that makes um, the journey a little easier. But unfortunately, I suppose our system is as it is. We have an adversarial system and it's one person's word against another in these trials. They're always going to be very difficult but I think there are still a lot of things we can do to ease someone's passage through the system. And it's really important to remember that every single victim that comes forward does an enormous service for the state. Um, And I think that was really important that the legal professionals in particular were very keen to acknowledge that, that that the really important job that people who come forward and report do um, in in doing that great service for the state and giving evidence. 
Where can they get further details? And I, and I take it indeed that all of the bodies, including the Galway Rape Crisis Centre and Cope Galway and the rest of them that are dealing with people who have been uh, unfortunately in this position. Uh, where could they get copies of your report, uh, Dr Leahy? So, so the report is available to download um, from the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre website um, and they also have a recording of the launch from the report where I do a short presentation on some of the key findings. Um, that's available on, on their YouTube channel as well, and I imagine it's linked from their website. Um, and it would be great to hear feedback from people, um, and hopefully um, we might get some traction for some further reform in the system as well. Listen, keep up the good work, and well done to you on this one. It's uh, it, it had to be very difficult uh, to do, but you brought something to the table that hasn't been at the table before. Uh, so you really intru- and you looked at best practice across the world as well. Uh, so you have to uh, be commended. Hugely commended indeed, Dr. Susan Leahy of the University of Limerick School of Law. Thank you for joining us uh, today. Further details uh, from the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre website if you want to get further details on that uh, report. Uh, it's quite very comprehensive, by the way, but very easy to read as well. Hi, Keith. I wonder, could you help me in thanking a wonderful, kind Galway person having uh, lost my driving licence? I was delighted to find that it had been posted back to my address in County Mayo, this uh, caller called Lachlan said to us uh, this morning. Unfortunately, the sender didn't include their address uh, to me uh, to thank them personally. Uh, so if you have time, will you thank Martha, who found my driving licence outside Joyce's in Hedford, and maybe dedicate a song to her all, and uh, the people indeed will continue to do uh, random acts of kindness like this. Uh, all over Ireland. So, um, Lachlan O'Meyeron says the smallest of gestures can mean so much. Thank you, Martha. So, morning to you, Martha, there. And uh, well done. I'm posting that back. And now, though, I got a note from uh, Brendan Speedy Smith, indeed, in relation to today being Galway National Park City Initiatives, um, supported by the Galway Education Centre. They're hosting a Glorn and Oroch, uh, Oroch, indeed, an online gathering of young people from around 12 primary schools to give them an opportunity to voice their views on what they want uh, the future of Galway City to look like. One of those people coordinating all of this uh, is Fanula Garrity indeed. She's a teacher at Skull Katrina Senior uh, School in, in Renmore and she joins me on uh, the line today. And uh, good morning to you Fanula. thanks for joining. Is it today it's on, is it? Yes, good morning. How are you? Um, good. Yeah, it is today. Um, today um, it will be our first um, our first forum and it is um, I'm really excited because I think this is the very first time we're giving a stage for youngsters for young people to voice what they really want Galway to look like um, going forward and it's um, yeah we're very excited it'll be our first time doing this there's over um, over 15 classes going to join me at 11 o'clock and um, to discuss uh, and to have a bit of a chat about what they see Galway like now and give us ideas of how we can help um, make our city more greener, bluer, healthier, safer and it's, more sustainable for all. It's going to be so very interesting be to core. see what comes back out of this, Fanula. Oh, it's really interesting. I tell you, I got questionnaires are coming back. We've put out pre-forum questionnaires to the children and, of course, children are very honest and they'll give it to you straight up. Um, and some of their ideas and where their heads are at, um, it would would, would really um, inspire you um, to get involved in this. I mean, this is a fantastic initiative set up by Speedy. Um, he really is trying to um, trying to promote. He's been doing. He's been trying to promote Galway 
um, the environment and the nature in, within Galway City for years now. And um, this is just a fantastic initiative, um, the Galway National Park City Initiative. And um, just under this umbrella, we're bringing in a wide range of ages and lots of people from different backgrounds. Mm. It really is a fantastic... Uh, it fantastic is, but do you, know, do you know what, though? I mean, um, I know you've put time capsules down in the school and taken them back up again, and you've done all that type of stuff in school, Katrina. But I actually think... You're looking at, what age profile are you looking at here? Are you looking at 8, 10, 11-year-olds? Well, yeah, no, today we're focusing on primary schools. Yeah. So um, so they will be ranging from 5 years up to 12 years. But up we're to hoping 12. to get into the secondary schools and, and look at them as well and also get the university involved. So, yeah, we're looking at all, all age groups um, and we want everybody to get involved in this because really, in the end of the day, we are just, Temporary custodians. Of that's all. We're just gar- we're just guardians for everything. Guardians, that's, that's it. all. And we're going to hand this over to our next generation, and let's do it right. You know, let's do it proper. But that's that's the way life has gone. You know, our grandfathers handed it to our parents. Our parents have handed mm-hmm. it to us. I'm a lot older than you, Sayano Fanula. So we hand no, it then to the ne- <laughs> we hand it to the next generation down. And then this generation that you're talking about is then the generation that in twenty five years' time will be making huge um decisions living indeed. Living, yeah, yeah, living yeah. with their families. Yeah, and they and will look back and say, Do you remember that twenty twenty one? Remember do you remember that, that what was her name again? Fanula something or other? And she had it all on a Zoom call. Why do we uh, on Zoom? We were in the middle of a pandemic. Well, well it's not about an individual. No, no, but you're sowing the seed really today. You're, you're sowing yes, the seed for the future. Today is the start. Yeah. yeah, today is the kickstart. And really what it's all about is just giving the children a, a, a stage so they can come up and they can say, look, I think this is a great idea. I wish there was more bins. I wish there was a skate park. I wish there was more street lights that were um, solar powered and pointing downwards so it's not affecting birds. I wish there was um, more safer walkways. I wish there was more climbable trees. I wish there was more swings. I wish there was more yeah. hammocks. These are these are things that our children are asking us for. More wildflowers. Um, stop spraying. Please stop spraying. I have one girl here who actually wrote down, please, please, will you tell the adults to stop spraying? But that's, you know, I was, I was reading an article um, in today's Irish Times by Bridget O'Dea. We're hoping she'll join us in the next hour. Uh, a weed is just a plant growing where it's not valued, is the headline of the article. So that really? young girl, yeah, it's a brilliant. If you get a chance really? to on 12 o'clock, just uh, look it up and have, have a look at it. Kind of just, it just says it all. It just says it all. Yeah, uh, about I think it. what we're doing is the youngsters are telling us, they're telling us to look at things differently. You know, a manicured, a beautiful manicured garden um, comes be, at a price, though. Comes at a huge price. Yeah. And it's like we're trying to stop the real nature tide from taking it. We should celebrate what we have. I mean, we live in the most magnificent city. But you know what? We, really we do. do. We do. But I think, um, and it could be the next project that I could nominate you for, Fanula Gerrity, Teacher in School, oh, Katrina. Now, this is the next <laughs> one, is right? So you, 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 you have the 12 classes online today and you'll be like I a circus. You'll be, like the, you'll be yeah. like the person in the middle of the circus um, and you'll be, you'll be able to control them. But then what you need well, to do actually, is... Do you, know what? do you know what? It's the teachers behind all of that as well. The teachers yeah, have been absolutely fantastic. They're allowing me to come in at the end of their academic year. With Like COVID has put a massive pressure on yeah. primary school teachers to finish the curriculum. So I'm so grateful to those who say, yeah, come on in to my class. 
for the hour <laughs> and 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 sh- and allow the children to have their voice. That's okay. huge. But the next challenge for you then is you leave the the small peoples, you leave them, and they're 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 easy to get on with, and then you jump two generations. And you try and get to the adults and say, this is what this generation, the new generation wants. This is what you have to do. And don't be cutting your grass within an inth of his life. Listen, good luck with it. Will you come back and report back to us if you don't mind uh, following will, today's event? I will. And good luck I with it. And we're sending you all the positive energy in the, the world. Time. Yeah, so. and, and, and look, Brendan Smith is a legend. That's all I can say. Um, without him um, power steering this and really power steering this, this all wouldn't happen. No. And we will get there. We will get there. And do you know what? The bottom line is there's nothing like a child's voice to tell us to cop on right. and to really look up and look at what we have and appreciate what we have. We are so lucky here in Galway and we should really take this opportunity and listen to the uh, young, youngsters. I'd love to be a fly on the wall, but I have a radio programme to continue until 12 o'clock. Keep in contact with us and thank you indeed to Brendan Speedy-Smith uh, for bringing that to our attention. And again, uh, it's taking place at 11 o'clock uh, today. Now that let me move on, Galway Garda, you're seeking your assistance and Garda Alan Regan uh, joins you on the line. Garda Regan, good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us uh, today on the programme. Uh, we're looking at a burglary first off and uh, you're going to do an industrial estate on the Tomb Road area. That's right, Keith. On Sunday morning, the 20th of June, at around 3.45am, an industrial unit on Tomb Road in Galway was broken into. During the course of the burglary, a number of power tools were taken. These include a Milwaukee impact screw gun, two half-inch Milwaukee wrench drills, and two three-quarter-inch Milwaukee wrench drills. And to guard you're asking anyone who may have been on the Tomb Road between 3.45 and 4am on Sunday morning and may have noticed anything unusual. Or anyone who may have been offered any of these power tools for sale, contact Galway Garda Station on zero nine one five three eight zero zero zero. Now you're staying indeed with burglaries uh, this morning. You're going into Galway City. That's right. Also on Sunday morning, the twentieth of June, at around four a.m., a house at Dock Road, Galway, was broken into and damage caused. Now, during the course of this burglary, a number of household items were taken. And to Garda, you're asking anyone who may have been in the Dock Road area in the early hours of Sunday morning and may have noticed anything. Or anyone with any information in relation to this incident, to contact Galway Garda Station on zero nine one five three eight zero zero zero. Now we're looking at criminal damage, and you're sticking in the city, indeed, not too far from Dock Road, in relation to the first uh, criminal damage. That's right. Uh, this time at six thirty p.m. on Tuesday, the fifteenth of June, a black BMW three twenty was parked along Merchants Road in Galway. Now, shortly after parking, the rear window of the vehicle was struck with an object thrown at it causing the window to shatter. Now, the Guardian Galway are asking anyone who may have seen this damage being caused or anyone with any information that could help their investigation to contact them at 091 Now, we're sticking with criminal damage on this and you're going to run more here. That's right. This time on Friday evening, the 18th of June, just before 7pm, the rear window of a Toyota Avensis Silver in colour Parked at the Renmore AFC soccer pitches in Renmore was damaged with a large wooden branch. Now, this branch was left at the scene and it looked like it had been freshly broken off one of the trees in the area. And the Gardaí are asking anyone who may have seen this damage being caused or anyone who may have seen a person carrying this large wooden branch to contact Galway Garda Station on 091 538 000. are making uh, an appeal for witnesses as well and uh, you're going into the county on this one, uh, Garda Regan. That's right. This incident is going back to Tuesday afternoon, the 8th of June, between 12.15 and 12.45 p.m. 
a young male was cycling his bike through Cordulla village close to the church when it was alleged he was struck by a car that failed to stop. Now, the Gardaí are very anxious to speak with the driver of this car and are asking anyone who may have been in the Cordulla area at around 12.30pm on Tuesday the 8th of June and may have seen this incident to please come forward. We are also appealing to a female motorist who came upon the incident and stopped to help the injured male to also make contact. Anyone with any information is asked to contact Orne Morgard Station on 091-388-030. Now, we're all getting uh, calls to our mobiles on an ongoing basis as well, um, but a lot of them are to do with fraud, and uh, you some updates on that for us. That's right, Keith. In the last number of days, we've received a number of reports of people receiving phone calls from fraudsters claiming to be members of Angarda Siakana. Now, when they receive these phone calls, the numbers coming up on their phone appear to be the number of genuine Garda stations. Now, this appears to be a nationwide scam and is involving Garda station phone numbers from Wexford, Dublin and Donegal. Now, there are a number of elements involved in these fraudulent calls. Firstly, the person receiving the call is put through to a pre-recorded or an automated message, prompting them to select an option. This person is then put through to a fraudster, alleging to be a member of Angarda Shea This fraudster will look for personal or financial information or informs the person that their details have been linked to a crime. After the victim gives their personal information, they will receive a follow-up call from another fraudster seeking more details on behalf of Angarda Shea And again, when they receive these calls, the number on their phone appears to be that of a genuine Garda station. Now, we would like to remind the public that Angarda Siakana will never contact any member of the public in this way. Members of Angarda Siakana will not phone you seeking personal or financial information. Now, our advice, if you should receive one of these calls, is to not engage with the caller. Do not return the call. Do not follow the automated instructions. Never disclose any personal or financial information over the phone or in an email and never transfer money, and hang up and end the call as soon as you com- become aware it's fraudulent. Now, in the last number of months, we've received reports of similar scams claiming to be from the Department of Social Protection, and we are reminding people to be wary of these phone calls and never divulge personal or financial information to anyone over the phone or in an email. If you have been the victim of a scam, you should contact your financial institution immediately and report the matter to Angarda Shikana. All right, Gareth Allen Regan, thank you for joining us uh, today. With that, if you can assist in any way, 0015380000 is the number. Thank you to Gareth Allen Regan and his colleagues, indeed, for the work they do on an ongoing basis. And you'll find further details on our website, galwaybfm.ie. Now, Keith, I have a question for your listeners. Maybe someone can help. My daughter is in extreme uh, pain with toothache since 8 p.m. yesterday evening and uh, she's had no sleep and attended West Dock at 2.30 a.m. to get something to ease the pain. She's still in pain and she's been trying to get a dentist to see her since 8.30 this morning uh, but they're all putting her on a cancellation list. Uh, what should she do? Go to A&E? There's some wonderful dentists out there and hopefully if there's any of them out there that can take this girl. I don't know what age she is. Maybe come back and let us know what age she is. I'll give uh, Ava a call in reception, if you don't mind. And uh, we will try and link you. If there's any dentist practice out there uh, that has availability today in the city or the county, would you be good enough, please, to ring us here, 091 770 and we can um, hook you and the mom up. I take it, if it's West Dock, I take it you're based within the city. Uh, so wherever, wherever you can get um, a fit her in today. There is nothing worse 
than a toothache, is there? Anyway, let me go to uh, MEP uh, Luke Ming Flanagan, who joins you on the line. And he joins me on line one today. Uh, um, Luke, good morning to you. Thank you for joining us uh, today. Good morning, uh, Keith. How are you? Good. Now, you and I had a brief conversation yesterday. You've been working on the whole CAP situation and um, you've been working quite hard on this situation for the members of the uh, farming community. Yeah, it's actually uh, three years and three weeks today since uh, Phil Hogan, the then Agriculture Commissioner, put out his proposals on CAP reform. And for the last three years and three weeks, uh, myself and other uh, MEPs have been working on uh, their proposal, uh, putting our twist on it and what we think should be done. And uh, this Friday, the Commission, the Parliament and the Council, which is all the Ministers for Agriculture from all around the European Union, uh, we are expected to make a decision on what the new Common Agricultural Policy will mean. And uh, basically, uh, we're coming to crunch time. And uh, when I originally probably spoke to you many years ago, uh, when I got involved in politics, I have to say, I hadn't a clue about how farming worked, how the Common Agricultural Policy worked. And as someone who was a townie, I actually felt, and wrongly, I felt that it didn't have a lot to do with me. But now that I've drilled into it, and I've looked at it, and I've talked to people like my father, who isn't a farmer and was a carpenter, and who got money out of houses that got cap, and I've spoken to hairdressers, etc., who cook people's hair in the countryside, and various different professions, and I've worked out that this impacts pretty much everyone. And in the case of Galway, in the five years that CAP, this CAP program will run, because it's starting late, from 2023 to 2027, we're talking in the region of two-thirds of a billion euros for County Galway. It's an awful lot of money, so it is. Yeah, it's, an, it's a massive amount of money. But the, what at the moment, uh, what has been debated is how this money is divided up. And uh, there's this thing called convergence, which I'll tell you again, years back I wouldn't have had a clue about it, but it's a situation whereby farmers are looking to get equal payments on their land for equal work and equally following European Union regulations. And at the moment, the status quo is that legally in Ireland, the minimum subsidy that a farmer can get is 60% of the average. And counties like Galway, because of that, are suffering and losing money. And what I have been fighting for, and I've convinced the Parliament to go along with this, is that all payments per hectare should be the same for all farmers. And if this happened in County Galway, you would 63% of farmers would gain and the remaining farmers would end up on the same average payment as the others would aspire to. But overall, it would be worth, throughout the five years of the cap, it should be worth an extra €40 million Euros, uh, for Galway. And at the moment, we're debating whether that should happen or not. Our Minister for Agriculture, um, I'm trying to establish what his position is. I did a radio debate with him yesterday in Donegal and I was informed by him that he hasn't decided on his position yet, which I find a little bit strange given that his job is to give Ireland's position at the European Council and that feeds into the overall position which will be fought for this Friday. So I find myself in the position whereby... I'm fighting for 100% 
but we don't actually know what our minister is fighting for. Maybe he could enlighten us somehow. Well, we'll put a call into him indeed, uh, into his advisors and see, and his press advisors from there. But surely, I mean, if it's going to be approximately, if, if I'm doing the maths right, nearly 10 million a year, have an extra boost indeed to the farming community of County Galway, that's an awful lot of money, so it is. And he'd be foolish not just to put his shoulder to the wheel on this one and leave politics to one side. Yeah, well, look at I suppose if he was here, uh, uh, he might be saying that others are losing. And of course, if some people gain, others inevitably lose. But if the people who are losing are going back to a situation where they get the average payment, whereas for years they've been getting more, I would say, well, it's overdue and it's about time. But the interesting thing about it is, Keith, is Ireland could have done this all along. What I'm asking for here is not radical. I am radical in certain areas, but on this particular issue, it isn't radical because 19 out of the 27 member states have already done it. And basically where we are at the moment is, it's like going to the march. What the council are offering is 75. What I'm looking for and the parliament is looking for is 100. We're now at 85. They're They're willing to go as far as 85. So we're trying to drag them the extra 15%. But what I would say is the good news is the good news is this, even if it only ends up at 85%, the Irish government has the free will to do this anyways. Now, I got elected, as people would know, as a Eurosceptic, someone who was very questioning of Europe, and I've learned things good and bad since then. One thing I have learned is that if the Irish government is given the free will as to whether they'll give equal payments or not, throughout the last four caps, they have not done this. So as a result of that, the move that I made is to table amendment in the, an amendment in the Parliament that would force the Irish government to do 100% convergence. And uh, something that wouldn't happen in the Dáil as an independent, this actually made it the whole way through the Parliament. A majority of people voted for it and now the Parliament are fighting for that position. So um, when we go into the negotiations on Friday, uh, it's good to have all those people on our side, but uh, it would be even more helpful if we had Charlie McConnell on our side. And it's not like as if he doesn't have an incentive locally to do it, because actually Donegal would actually benefit by about £60 million over the term of the cap. So um, the Minister has a decision to make, Does he want equality for his own constituents or do we continue with what is a two-tier system? Now, some people would say, Keith, though, that there's a good reason why some farmers get more. And I have to say, originally I would have heard this chat and I would have thought, you know what, if people are producing more, maybe we should be giving them more. But when you actually drill down into the figures and you look at what the Department of Agriculture put out in 2017, I'd like more recent figures, but they can provide them. In 2017, they showed that the people who got the biggest payments had no more livestock on their land per hectare than those that were getting three times less than them. So you could legitimately argue that, well, if someone is producing the same for 100 as those that are getting a thousand. Not only are they just as productive, you could argue they're ten times better value. But we hear this argument though that those on small payments do less. Yeah. That isn't actually true. So 
that's one of the more, all the more reasons why I would fight for it. So can I ask you then, I mean, how are you going to, um, how do you think Friday will go then? Or, or when, when can this come to a conclusion? Well, we thought potentially it would have come to a conclusion three weeks ago, but it didn't. It fell down on this issue of convergence. And uh, fortunately, I have a good ally on my side, and his name is Herbert uh, Dorfman. He's in the same group as Fine Gael, but he happens to be from northern Italy and is affected by the same problem. And he wasn't willing to move on it. So on Friday, unless the ministers, ministers for agriculture in Europe, move, there is potential that we don't have a deal again. But I would not like to see that happen because the danger is that if they keep pushing this out further and further and further and we don't get a deal, we could end up with the status quo. And that obviously suits certain countries. So yeah, but not us, not us here in Galway. We might have to, to do a deal where we get slightly less, but it means that people in this area all get more money. And in the end, we will get to where we want to get to. So potentially a deal this Friday, hopefully a deal this Friday. But from a personal point of view, um, uh, and it's an overused phrase, uh, to put it mildly, it's an honour to be one of the eight MEPs out of all MEPs in the European Parliament to be in the room. It's an honour to be the only Irish person in the room. And if I think it says something for democracy. I hitched to my own campaign launch to the European elections in 1999, not knowing whether I'd get there on time and whether I'd get a lift or not. And I think it's, it says a lot about democracy that you can move from a situation like that to being the only representative in the room for Ireland on a negotiation that's worth about two-thirds of a billion to the people of Galway. So I'm honoured and I'm proud to be there and hopefully I'll be able to drive the deal home on Friday. So fingers crossed. No pressure. We'll be ringing you Friday night to make sure. Thank you for joining us there today, MEP. Luke Ming Flanagan joining us on the line there. Quick commercial break. We have quite a bit to get through between now and 12 midday. So do stay with us. Good health naturally with Polly from Evergreen Health Foods. Your first step to achieving a healthier you. With seven stores across Galway, being healthy has never been so easy. Now we'll join Polly in just a moment. Uh, stay tuned for details uh, on that coming in. Uh, the comment lines are open if you want to get through to us on 091 77 today. That's only one seven seven not not seven seven and five three nine nine five. Quite a few comments coming in today. We've no dentist as of yet. I have to say, uh, coming forward. Um, if you want to ring Avi, you can do so on oh nine one seven seven not not seven seven today. If you want to get in contact with us, we'd like to uh, hear if you can fit in that young girl today. Her mom is just beside herself with worry. So if you can fit her in today, it would be good uh, from there. And uh, coming in just on the other line, on the telephone lines uh, today, uh, Keith, uh, good to hear you talking indeed about uh, court and all that goes on within court. I was there recently and it's uh, quite shocking uh, what one goes through. And uh, Keith, I'm the mother of the daughter with the um, toothache. She's actually an adult but still experiencing excruciating pain. Uh, Maryland Park has a good dentist. And uh, Keith, this caller, said, will you tell the mom to put something cold on her feet to numb uh, the pain in her teeth, to put some whiskey on cotton wool and dab it on her tooth as well. And uh, Keith, another caller, said, I want single farm payments as well on today's programme. So what you need to do is um, talk to Ming about that as well. Uh, so we'll, uh, 
we'll deal with that separately. So we will single farm payments. And another caller said, uh, Hi Keith, I dropped in a book um, last March, 12 months um, by Martin O'Holloran uh, called The Lost Gale Tux. Yeah. And uh, he was the CEO of the Health and Safety Authority and introduced um, policies on preventing farm accidents. And that's from Tommy Cohen. Tommy, I still had that upstairs actually. Uh, just didn't get to it. Was it 12 months ago you dropped into me? We try to get on top of things normally, but um, let us go though to Polly who joins me on the line today now from Evergreen. And uh, Polly joins me on line one. Polly, morning to you. Hi Keith, how are you getting on? Good, thanks for joining us. Uh, I have a good few questions for you, so I'm going to rattle through them if you don't mind. Uh, somebody wants to know, we'll ask Polly, does she sell anything that might alleviate the pain and the duration of shingles? That's a tough one, isn't shingles. it? Shingles. Yeah, sorry now to this person if you're not feeling good. Um, I suppose most people probably know that the chickenpox virus, it can lie dormant in the body and in times of weakness or sometimes extreme stress, it can emerge as shingles and I suppose people who might be 50 and over would be more susceptible to it. So to this person now, I suppose it's important if your immunity is feeling weak that you take the best possible nutrition that you can. Just take plain foods that you know agree with you, like be that things like soups or broths or stews or something like that. If, it, if you find that easy to digest, um, just take that for the time being. Um, and just, I suppose, for your lifestyle, try and get as much rest as you possibly can. I know it's not easy for everybody, but just do what you can to have that little bit of extra rest. So in terms of supplementation, B vitamins would be really important if you have shingles um, because they're important for the nervous system. And shingles, it is a nerve pain. Um, so if you come into Evergreen to get B vitamins specifically for shingles, I would say ask for methylated B vitamins if possible because they're like kind of the most effective and the most absorbent for, I suppose, the most amount of people. Okay. And if you wanted something else, you could go for the vitamin C, the, the liposomal vitamin C, which again is the best form of vitamin C that we have. Now, um, you mentioned before, by the way, before I run away from shingles, you mentioned uh, before, I believe, St. John's wort oil as well. Is that still something you'd be recommending? Yeah. So that's not to take uh, orally. It would be to, to put on to yes. a skin rash or, or something like that. Because now I know we do have a few bottles in Nakara, but I know it kind of can be a little bit hard to come by. Um, and the St. John's wort itself can help with nerve pain and the intense itching that you'll get with shingles. Just to just put on a little light layer there and it might help a bit. Okay, Um have you any suggestion for knee pain somebody wants to know? Uh, yeah, so I suppose the first thing I'd like to say about that is people often instinctually feel that they should, if they have a sore knee or something, that they should rest it. Um, but you will hear, like a lot of experts say, that the best thing you can do really is just to keep moving, keep walking, or do a nice uh, kind of easy exercise like swimming or something like that. Because... Uh, exercise, it sends more blood and it sends more nutrients to the knee joint and that can help it to repair. Now, obviously, if a person, you know, is needing a knee replacement or something like that, the advice would be different and you'd have to take advice from your doctor. But, like, if you've had a twist or a tear or just general damage to your knee, uh, supplementally, collagen powder could help because you're kind of giving your body more of, of what the, the knee joint actually uses in repair. And, of course, I talk a lot here about natural anti-inflammatories. Anti 
mm-hmm. things like turmeric and ginger and cherry juice and things like that. Those are all natural anti-inflammatories. So if you're on anti-inflammatory medication from the doctor or the pharmacy, that's fine. But you can take these natural ones as well. And they okay. might help that little bit more to bring down the pain. Um, again, the quick fire on. Now, do you have sun creams uh, that are baby friendly and don't irritate their eyes? That's a big question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we do. I've got a bigger range than ever now, actually, of, of natural sun creams and evergreen. And I, I personally think the best ones we have would be zinc-based. Um, like, so a lot of people, some people come in, they say they don't want the zinc ones because they look a bit white uh, on the skin and they have a bit of a white residue. But to be, to be honest now, the, the benefit of that is that's a physical barrier between like, your baby's skin and the UVA and UVB rays. Um, so, and, and the good thing as well about the zinc-based ones is, okay, it's sitting there on the skin, but it's not being absorbed. So, you know, it's not affecting anybody. You might not, you know, it's, it has it's what you want it for. It's to, co- to it. it's to protect exactly. the child in question. If my child yeah. eats a good varied diet, do they need vitamins, Polly? Well, no. Like if if you have a really really good varied diet, that's brilliant. There's never any substitute for that. That's the best thing you can do. Um, so well done. <laughs> okay. I suppose what I might consider there is there are some things that you can't really get from a really good diet and I would always consider a fish oil anyway um, or a vegetarian alternative because it's very, very hard to ingest enough omega-3 by just eating fish alone, even if you're eating it really regularly. Um, it's difficult to get the good quality fish. It's difficult in the cooking process to still retain all that kind of beneficial fat. Um, there's a lot of research to say that it's really, really good for concentration at school, things like dyslexia, dyspraxia. And don't forget as well that fish oils, I think now are more beneficial for children than they are for adults because DHA, which is a a kind of vital component within the omega-3 fat, um, has more to do with the developing brain, so developing cognitive health and things like that. So it would be more beneficial for babies and children than it is for adults. So maybe consider a fish oil, but brilliant. Well done on getting your child to eat a varied diet. Unreal. Okay, and briefly, if you don't mind on this one, um, Mm. what what have you got for energy? I've had the vaccine this week and I'm really tired. That seems to be one of the side effects that people have. What would you recommend? Look, first of all, just very quickly say that I think if you are feeling tired after the vaccine, it's literally an immune response, and, and that's a good thing. And I would say that it probably means that your body's responding to that and it's creating an immune response, and the vaccine is probably working for you. So, you know, and it will go away on its own. I'm sure it will. Um, I'm having mine soon, like in a few days' time, and I'm going to be taking some antioxidant supplements. Uh, people are coming in a lot asking for things like uh, pine, pine needle tea or coenzyme Q10 or quercetin. Those are all antioxidant things. Obviously, those people have looked it up on the, on the internet. So those are all antioxidants. And those types of things can help your body when you're having an immune response and might reduce the tiredness a little bit. So 
antioxidants, I'd say. Okay, well, there's a poly in every evergreen, so there is, um, pardon the pun in that, uh, but um, if you want to pop into any of the evergreens, but Polly's based in Nakanakara today, and she may just have some of that St. John's wort oil as well there. Um, Polly, thank you for joining us uh, today, but there's a poly in every evergreen if you want to pop into them. Good health naturally with Evergreen Health Foods, a world of natural health awaits at your local Evergreen Health store and online at evergreen.ie. Well, I'll tell you one thing, that we have a lovely story coming the way right now. So we do Iconic Caminos, run by Alan Kearns indeed, as we know. Um, but he's been supported indeed by the team in Kirby Group Engineering. And it's a lovely story indeed where they're trying to identify and ask the members of the public uh, to nominate a healthcare worker for a place on the Heroes Retreat uh, on dates between now and the end of 2021. Uh, Alan Kearns, good morning to you. How are you today? Morning, Keith. How are you? Good. You always come up with something classic, but you've outdone yourself right now, haven't you? Well, I don't know about that, but uh, yeah, we think it's a it's it's a it's a lovely way to to thank, I suppose, the real heroes of the last eighteen months um, who sacrificed so much um, and who stepped forward. I suppose as we step back, yeah, and um, you know, uh, you know, I think they deserve it. Um, he, that are every tanked in a meaningful way and rewarded in a meaningful way and we think this is one way to do it. Now, I didn't even realise that Notre Dame, I knew that Notre Dame were heavily involved in the whole situation in relation to Kylemore Abbey, uh, but the Notre Dame Global Centre at Kylemore Abbey, you're looking at, um, you're looking for nominations for healthcare workers for a free three-day retreat at Notre Dame uh, Global Centre in Kylemore Abbey. Yeah, it's a stunning location and I, I work closely with Lisa Cawford and John D. Out in the Notre Dame Global Centre, I lecture for some of our students that are on their uh, executive education retreats. Um, and uh, I have a great relationship, and I suppose I have unique access. You know, you can't, you can't really get Alan, access can I get you closer to your microphone there, if you don't mind? You're just going all over the place, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm in the yeah. car here. Um, yeah, I'm a close relationship with Lisa and John in, um, in the Notre Dame Global Centre at Kyle Moore, and I lecture on some of their programmes. So I... I, I I have unique access, I suppose, to, to the centre. And, you know, it's just a stunning location. And I suppose as we well, we step back into nature, I suppose, um, and we also have the power of that. Um, we're, we're, and I suppose the frontliners and the healthcare workers stepped forward and protected us and sacrificed us. And they literally gave us oxygen. And now we believe it's our turn to give them oxygen of much-needed rest and recuperation and pampering. And no better place than the wonderful setting where we're going out, the Notre Dame Global Centre at Kylemore with the lakes, the mountains. You know, we're really going to pamper them and, uh, and help them recover, maybe process a little bit. But re- re- renewal and restoration and recuperation is the theme of the weekend. And how many people you're looking initially at, uh, thanks to uh, uh, the team at Kirby Group Engineering, we'll talk to Mark in a moment, uh, how many people will you take on each of the uh, three? Well, we're going to be taking the 14 rooms, we're going to take 14 people uh, plus their partner, so we'll 28 people in total, so 56 people over two weekends, and then we'll have a big team of support team, um, facilitators, guides, musicians, um, psychosocial support councils and um, we'll have a big team on site as well um, out there for the weekend and other locations to support them uh, over the weekend therapists, massage, everything you know 56 is um, again including partners that's a nice that's a nice grouping of people to have there yeah and, yeah. Ha- and I suppose we have a, I have a number of other weekends reserved because it's, it's, you can't really get access to, to the Notre Dame Global Centre so we have another maybe 10 weekends 
potentially booked off for the rest of the year and we will use other locations if need be um, and we're hoping to get them covered to, to, you know, to get a lot more out there and to experience the magic and the beauty of the place but also to say a meaningful thank you and, and, and help them in, in uh, you know, they've been through a horrendous, like, we've only opened uh, the nomination process over the weekend and it hasn't really taken off publicly or um, in terms of PR but we've already got over six, 700 nominations and some of the stories are you know, unbelievable in terms of the sacrifice and the something incredibly deserving stories. It's 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 it's, it's some of the, some of them are hard to read. Um, um, so it's it's a hugely needed service and offering as well for so many many more. Stay with me, Mark Flanagan is managing director indeed of Kirby Group Engineering, and they've uh, put a, a good chunk, a lot of money into this indeed. Uh, Mark Flanagan, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Um, um, again, this is by way of saying thank you to. Again, those healthcare workers. Morning, Keith. Yes. Um, Alan came to our board and presented to us there about a month ago. And we immediately said yes. Um, so our thoughts at the time were that COVID is a, a once-in-a-lifetime crisis, Keith. And I'm old enough to be able to say that my parents lived through World War Two, and they, they, they had memories of that and have memories of that. Uh, and I suppose that was their once-in-a-lifetime crisis, and COVID is ours. So with that, we believe that um, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to thank, to thank the frontline workers who did step forward when we had to step back. These are the people who were there for us, and now it's an opportunity for us to be there for them. Um, and I suppose the reason I'm on is, is to ask other companies to join us in supporting this worthy cause, uh, because this opportunity to say thank you may not be there uh, again. And uh, it's just such a worthy cause, Keith. Uh, I feel it's, it's, it's worth getting out there. It is. Um, and um, again, Alan, you, you need more um, Kirby's group engineering. You need more like that indeed to come and and try and support. Uh, the, I mean, because you're getting it financially, you're when you look at the costs and you look at the amount of people involved, you're getting good value for money, but you need the money to, to execute this. Yeah. yeah, we believe we're getting huge value for money there in terms of, you know, the location and the, the quality and the kind of high-end product and um, um, and they deserve that, you know. We're not going, we want to really, really treat them and thank them. Um, so we would love when we'd order other companies to come on board uh, and... As Max says, it's a once-in-a-lifetime crisis. We're, given, we're going to offer once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in this wonderful, unique uh, you know, location and other locations. And um, to, say, to, to say that once-in-a-lifetime thank you for for, our, for the crisis of our times. And you know, from reading the from reading the nominations so far, the over 600, 700 nominations so far, you know, a lot more need this, uh, considering the trauma and the sacrifice and the. You know the horrific story some of them have, have been through um, over the last number of years, over the last eighteen months or so. So, where can they continue nominating? You can, do they just go to the iconic yeah, Camino website? Yes, yeah, if, yeah, if they go to the iconic Camino website and go onto the Heroes Retreat page, there's a nomination form there where people go on and nominate people who they feel really, really deserve this. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, well, and, and more importantly, who really, really need us. Well, well done, though, to uh, Mark Flanagan and the team from uh, Kirby um, Engineering. I mean, they've, they've group engineering. You've made the presentation, and uh, they have um, they have yeah. actually. Well, of course, Keith. Um, 
Yeah, I, I work with work with Kirby as well in, in other capacities um, in terms of communication and leadership. With them. We worked with a lot of their teams and Mark and, and Ivy's board. And I see firsthand now their days. They recently got awarded uh, a platinum accreditation in, in investing in people. And they really, really, I see firsthand the stories behind the scenes, the untold stories. They really, really invest in their own people and also quietly in other major causes behind the scenes. Okay. And this is that this. I can't thank them enough for stepping forward again and investing in in, in, in the real heroes of, of the last 18 months, which are the frontline workers. Well done to you. Listen, um, thank you, Alan, for joining us. Mark Flanagan, thank you for joining us, Managing Director of the Kirby Group. And uh, well done for the details. So if you want to nominate somebody today, you can do so uh, by quite simply going, put in just iconiccaminos.ie. Uh, just put in iconiccaminos.ie uh, to get further details there. Alan, just before you go, it, Somebody wants to know, what, what's the definition of healthcare workers in this regard here? Are you talking about right across yeah. the board? Right across the board, look, at we, it'll be everyone from the from, from ICUs to the COVID wards to care homes to, um, I suppose, and we were defined there, in the, it's, it's defined as anyone working in direct patient care in the health service during 220 and 221. That's probably the best the best way of putting it. Uh, and Mark, I mean, is this one of the biggest um, sponsorships that you've you've done as a group? No, um, this would be a sizable contribution. But uh, normally at Christmas, we, we we have three charities we choose, and um, it's it's along these lines that that, that we donate. I suppose we are uh, privileged, I suppose, to be in a position where we can support. Um, just causes like these, and uh, really, it's 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 uh, it's, a, it's a nice place to be to be able to help in a situation like this. And um, we're 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 about people as a company, and uh, we're about giving back where we can. And this is certainly one of the places we can give back, and we're very honoured to do so. I know you've, you your headquarters is in Ballyban there, but I mean you you've teams all over the world, haven't you? Well, all over Europe. Um, we're working in Finland, Sweden, Switzerland, uh, the Netherlands, and now in Italy. Um, we do a lot of work in data centres, so uh, that kind of work is, is, has really taken off lately, Keith. So you're, it's, it's global, but uh, you're still thinking of home, so you are. Uh, Mark Flanagan, thank you indeed for joining us. Alan, good luck with it, and uh, keep up the good work. And I hope, I hope you get others to come on, online with you, uh, because just doing the maths on it, I mean, you're looking at you know, about, about 500 euro per person, roughly, and that's for three days. And look at just look what you're giving back uh, to the person who's been on the front line for a year and a half at this stage. Yeah, yeah, and look at and people, you know, we'd love people to come forward and contact us, uh, companies, and even individuals who who can fund um, for weekends. A couple of weekends are part. Okay. Every every contribution will help. All right, listen, we're going to get you a new phone, Dr. Curran, so we are. Alan Curran, thank you for joining us. Mark Flanagan, thank you for joining us as well uh, on today's uh, programme. Now, I had hoped to go uh, to rent the runway indeed uh, to get to them tomorrow morning because they're looking at uh, four-day weeks. It's something we'll be looking at uh, tomorrow morning on the uh, programme. Plus, uh, we have lots of other bits and pieces coming the way tomorrow morning. Uh, so join us uh, for that. Uh, some of the other comments still coming in today. Uh, Keith, uh, this uh, caller said, in relation to uh, for pain of shingles, uh, which is nerve pain, a drug called Lyrica, 
is very effective uh, if supplements don't uh, work, but uh, prescription only there. And another caller uh, said, uh, getting close to 40 and suppose I should start a multivitamin routine. Uh, has Polly any recommendations there? We'll have uh, passed that on to her again. And uh, Keith, somebody's asked me what happened in relation to Gort and an incident in Gort uh, yesterday evening. Uh, we'll pass that on to news uh, from there. Hi Keith, we're members of the EU and yet in France people could retire at 60 and when it was raised to 62 a few years ago there was huge protest and uproar. If people want to retire at 65 or if they want to continue working they should be given that option. The government keeps talking about funding for pensions and only solutions they come up with is raising the retirement age. So if we all keep working, where do, will the young people get a chance uh, to work? Uh, there are some young, talented, educated people on unemployment uh, because the government decisions and the longer it continues the more problems will occur from there and the, the saying goes use it or lose it if they cannot choose what talent they have then Ireland is a poorer because of it please don't read out my name if you don't mind uh, but you might just agree or disagree with my comment and uh, Keith there is never anything this caller said there is never anything um, sincere about the promises Kieran Canning should come down to ground level and do what he was elected to do. He promised that we would have a swimming pool in Ockray and we don't have one yet, the scholar said. I wouldn't say it's his fault, sorry from there. And uh, Keith, people who started uh, work at 15 definitely didn't enter in a, into any contract. Not a hope of people getting pension now at 65 years of age uh, with all of the money that we owe because of covid and what's going on there. So we will not be retiring anytime soon, the scholar said. Hopefully, hopefully people can retire when they want to retire, another caller said. Uh, but it's uh, the government should not be dictating the pace on this one. I'm 70 years of age and I still love working. So please, just leave me alone, the scholar said to the programme today. That's it for today. We're back to July from um, back to July from Studio One tomorrow morning, starting just after the nine o'clock news. If you want to get in contact with us, KF Show at GoldwayBFM.ie is the best uh, line to come in on uh, from there. Just uh, KF Show at GoldwayBFM.ie. It's gone a little dull, so it is, since we came on here. It was nice and sunny this morning, so let's hope that the sun will shine for the rest of the day. It's supposed to be a dry day in Galway City and County. So, maybe you can get out and about and just breath, breathe in that fresh air from there. KT produced. Ava took all of your comments. But when you're through the Keith again until tomorrow, just after the 9 o'clock news, enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. And don't forget, if you have a story for us, get in contact with us on 091 And we can take it from there. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.